So it's a very important micronutrient. As we look at it, we know we've got to have the right amount, but we also know that we can have too much, and that is not our friend. Global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Rod here at A Better Way to Farm, doing the 12 Days of Nutrients. Today, we're on day nine. We're going to talk about iron. You know, our goal here is to increase yields and improve profits, and we try to do that by helping everyone learn more about what the different nutrients do and how they interact and how important they are. And guys, I've said many times in this series, everything matters. It truly does. So today, as we're talking about iron, first let's go to our sheet. What does it do? The short version promotes the formation of chlorophyll. It acts as an oxygen carrier and it has reactions involving cell division and growth. So it's another nutrient that's very important to cell division and therefore it's very important to growth. As we take a look at the iron product or the iron nutrient and look at what it does, we come up with things such as, this is important to know, the availability will decrease as pH increases. So as our pH gets higher and moves up the scale, iron chlorosis often develops in our field crops as a result of that high pH. High levels of phosphorus, everything works together. High levels of phosphorus in conjunction with iron will form an insoluble iron phosphate compound and that may induce iron deficiency. Iron is not easily leached from the soil under normal circumstances. However, poorly drained soils or soils containing excess water with poor aeration, which restricts root growth, may cause unfavorable conditions for iron uptake. In other words, it's still there, we're still stuck with it, and yet our plant can be deficient. Iron, again, is essential for the formation of chlorophyll and photosynthesis. It's also an activating element in several enzyme systems, much like magnesium is. It's important in the respiration and the other oxidation systems of a plant, and it is vital to the oxygen-carrying system. So it's a very important micronutrient. As we look at it, we know we've got to have the right amount, but we also know that we can have too much, and that is not our friend. The fertilizer handbook very quickly points out iron deficiencies reduce yields, especially on the calcareous soils in the western U.S. Only a small fraction of the total iron in the soils is available to plants, and that fraction decreases with an increase in soil pH. Iron deficiencies will generally appear as a yellowing of the intervenal portion of the leaves, a condition called iron chlorosis. Here's the distinguishing factor. Leaves of iron-deficient plants are pale green to yellow and may even appear white, depending upon the crop and the degree of the chlorosis. If you've got white plants, that's a good place to start looking. Iron chlorosis is corrected mainly by foliar sprays. Several sprays, 7 to 14 days apart, may be needed for more severe chlorosis. Growers have found that some synthetic chelates are more effective than ferrous sulfate as a foliar spray. A surfactant or wetting agent should be included for most foliar sprays to improve the leaf adherence and the iron absorption. Early correction of iron chlorosis is essential if yield losses are to be prevented. Again, guys, we don't want to get visual symptoms. We want to beat it to the punch 
Do the soil testing. If you know you're fighting this, do your tissue testing and correct it as quickly as you can. Soil applications of iron sources are usually not effective for crops because iron applied quickly reverts to the forms that are unavailable to the plant. Some crops, especially grain sorghum, is highly susceptible to iron chlorosis. We also know that soybeans fit into that crowd just as well. And then we can really get hurt if we don't have adequate iron in there. Again, another from the Western book telling us what it does and a little bit more on how to diagnose it. And that was why I marked this was because it's so good on a diagnosis. Iron is essential for the formation of chlorophyll. It apparently enters into the oxidation process, which releases energy from sugar and starches. Your symptoms of an iron-starved plant, chlorosis of the leaves, youngest leaves being affected first. The points and margin of the leaf keep their green color the longest and veins remain green. So you've got intervenal striping, but it's on the middle part of the plant. And lastly, the affected leaf will tend to curve in an upward direction. So we've got the chlorosis. We're getting light in color. It's not at the edges of the plant, but it's in the middle and it's intervenal. And we've got that leaf cupping in the upward direction. That's a good indicator that we have an iron deficiency that we need to take care of and see what we can do with. Guys, prevention is far better than cure. Ounce of prevention is worth 30 pounds of cure because we don't want to suffer through that loss of yield that comes from a lack of iron. Donald Schrieffer says that anaerobic soil organisms also take their oxygen from certain iron compounds, and we refer to their end product as a form of reduced iron. Reduced iron can cause several reactions because many plants tend to overfeed upon it. Excessive iron intake can darken and plug the nodes of corn. This plugging of the nutrient channels progressively slows the upward movement of nutrients in the plant. Progressive plugging of corn nodes causes the plant to age prematurely and die. The inner nodes will remain high in moisture and the sugars inviting the invasion of soil fungi and stock rot. The interior of a healthy maturing corn stalk will not backlog water or sugars and will have the appearance of being filled with dry styrofoam. Node plugging and stock rot are a reflect a breakdown of the soil plant relationship. So iron's one of those things, guys, we can have too much, we can have not enough. Here where we live in southern Iowa, we have very, very high iron levels. And that works against us because it keeps our phosphorus from becoming available and tends to tie up the phosphorus that we have. Again, he's talking about the fact that especially the higher pH, but if you get above 7.5, that's when it really kicks in in that calcareous soil and that iron chlorosis will come on. And another thing that will trigger that deficiency is an excessive phosphate application. Guys, when we apply too much of one thing, it's always at the expense of something else and we cannot cure everything that ails us with one nutrient. The answer is not 400 pounds of nitrogen and skip everything else. The answer is not 500 pounds of phosphorus and skip everything else. The answer is to do everything that that plant needs in the right ratios that that plant needs it. Because if we put on excessive phosphate, we're going to trigger an iron deficiency in acid soils. It doesn't have to be calcareous. It doesn't have to be high pH. It can be acid and we'll still get a problem there. Iron management, as with manganese management, is greatly influenced by soil temperature and root development. A large root system is the best insurance against deficiency. Guys, everything we do needs to be headed towards the same goal. And so if we've got things that we can do, like the total package of correct micronutrients will increase root growth. 
early available orthophosphate will increase root growth. We want to be doing those things that will do that. Soil temperatures directly relate to root growth, making iron management and manganese management absolutely necessary during the early growth period on certain soils. Those two products, when it's cold, don't like to go into the plant. The roots aren't growing very fast. we got to do everything we can to stimulate them. Iron management is most effective as a foliar application because that assures instant utilization and doesn't let it get tied up. Iron sulfate or other compounds of dry starter bands may not be utilized when they are needed due to cold or wet soil applications. And again, he's saying iron chelates are available and very effective as a foliar spray to correct iron deficiencies. They just keep coming back to that deal of spraying on a regular basis a small amount to correct what's wrong there and keep that plant humming along. Keep that factory, if you can, working 24-7 as opposed to taking a week or two off. Neil gets to talking about the fact that he says that the availability starts to decrease between 6 and 7, meaning trouble if there's barely enough iron. As the calcium is raised, the iron level decreases. So everyone agrees that the higher the pH, and especially when you get to 7.5 or above, we're going to have a problem there. He also says that iron chelates actually can be used as a soil amendment or in a foliar application. However, they're only going to take care of the problem for a year. If we have a high pH and we're fighting an iron problem, we're going to fight it every year. We're going to have to make the part of our management practice be to take care of that. As for deficiencies, it will depend on more than just where your iron level is because iron and manganese work together. Personally, I'd like to see an iron at 200 plus, and once you get below 100 parts per million, there is reason for concern. And if manganese is 75 and iron is 70, that can be trouble. For the best results, iron should be always be higher than manganese. If manganese is 125, we don't want iron to be 100. In any case, the iron levels in parts per million should be higher than the manganese levels. Guys, there's another ratio for us that we need to be looking at, and we need more iron available than manganese. It does not minimize the need for manganese because it's huge and most of the nation is deficient in it. But it's all, again, so you can't come back and cure everything with just a really high dose of manganese. Because if we put on a super high dose of manganese, then what are we going to do? We're probably going to create an iron deficiency in that, con in that process. And that's why we want to do it the right way based off of the test. Guys, I want to talk to you a little bit about, because I think in the process of diagnosing these deficiencies that it's really important that we know how to do it. Now we know the visuals if you go through these videos it will talk about it will talk about the fact that you can use the different ways to see it visually but we've also talked about the fact that by the time we see it visually we've lost yield we'd like to avoid that. So what's our first choice? Our first choice is actually frequent tissue testing. Now, tissue testing is not something that we can just do, and I'll probably hit this one more time in the later videos because it's important that we do it correctly. I've seen a lot of people go out, and they're going to tissue test corn or beans. The plant's small, V2, V3, so they just decide they're just going to pull them out of the ground. And the problem with pulling them out of the ground is when I pull it out of the ground, dirt splatters up onto the tissue. And if I don't wash that, then I send in soil along with the nutrients that gets ground up or excuse me, I send soil along with the plant that gets ground up, and we get a false reading on the nutrients. 
So what do we want to do? Number one, if we're going to take plants, we want to cut them with a pair of scissors or something sharp so that we're not pulling them. Number two, we want to make sure that the specimen is completely clean. And if that's not possible, if we've had a rain, if there's irrigation splatter, then we want to lightly rinse those plants off using distilled water, okay? We want to use distilled water because all of our pond water, all of our well water, all of our city water has minerals in it, and some of those will reside there and give us a false reading. So we go to town, we buy a gallon jug of of distilled water, and we rinse them off with that. It does not require much soil residue to throw off the analysis. Soil splashed on the plants from rainfall or irrigation or even extremely dusty conditions will have it settle on the leaves, and these are good examples. If we fail to send in clean plants, it is usually easy to recognize a test because iron, aluminum, and manganese will be extremely elevated, making it appear that they're all seriously high or even toxic. The next thing to do, guys, is to use nice, clean bags, and paper bags are the best. You know, I've heard it said, my wife says, experience is what you get when you get what you didn't want. And then I've heard it said that wisdom is using somebody else's experience. One of my first experiences, I was really new in the business, and I was in Arizona working with some alfalfa growers, and I thought I would be creative, and I went out, and it was interesting work. We did a soil test, and we did a tissue test, but I had to stay a few extra days because I thought, well, I'll protect these. I'll put them in a gallon Ziploc baggie. And so I pulled them and I sent them to Midwest Labs and I got a call from one of the very kind people out there and they said, what would you like us to do with this silage that you sent us? Are you looking for a feed value? And then they laughed because they knew that I had screwed this up. And so what I did was then you go to town and you either get tissue bags from Midwest Labs or you can just go to town and buy the little lunch bags like we used to take our lunch to school in, those paper bags. You put the sample in there, put those in a cardboard box. It's got to be breathable. We want to make sure that it can breathe so it doesn't go into that process of becoming silage. Now, the part of the plant that we're going to send in completely is dependent upon the stage of the plant. And the Midwest Labs handbook will tell you at every stage what you need to send in. When the plant is little, we cut it off at the top of the ground, we send the whole plant. And then there becomes a time when we just send the top fully developed trifoliate out of a soybean or we send the leaf opposite and below the ear shoot in the corn. But for a while, we send the entire plant. But it's important to grab that handbook so we know that we're sending in the right thing and so we can get the right results, so we can take the right corrective measures. And that is a great way to be successful in diagnosing these deficiencies and in correcting them. Coming out of Life and Energy, he says that iron draws energy to the leaf by absorbing heat. This makes the leaf darker. And so we do know that proper iron in the plant will make it a darker green color. Just a little tip, I spray iron on my yard at a rate that's probably off-label and way too high because it does make it a darker green. It also tends to stunt the growth. And so if you'd like a dark green yard and mow a little bit less, that's one of the things that you might do. No charge for that tip. Uh, it's off-label seven miles, but it seems to be working. And But we know that when we put the right amount of iron in, that we can make the plant darker. We know when the plant gets darker, it's just a great big solar panel. And that's what we're looking for is how do we capture that sunlight? That's energy, guys. That's free. We want to grab all of it that we can. There are no unimportant nutrients. They all, and it might be that they're 
important because we tend to have too much and that costs us money. It might be important because we don't have enough and that costs us money. It might be that just that one nutrient can somehow create a deficiency of another nutrient. And so all of these need to be studied in conjunction and used judiciously together. Iron is one of those things a lot of people don't talk about, but it needs to be looked at through the tissue analysis to make sure that A, we don't have too much, and B, that we don't have too little so that we can be successful. Guys, we really appreciate you tuning in. We would be really grateful for that. And as always, we'd love for you to share us with a friend if you've got someone you think might be interested in the information we're providing. We appreciate you very much. I wish you a very Merry Christmas. And we just want to tell you guys, we really do hope you're having a better day. A better way to farm.com. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.